0: from KIOS in Omaha. You're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock and today I am talking with the man behind Convoy and Mannheim Steamroller,
1: Chip Davis. Like I say, I love sound and I love, you know, using it in various ways and doing things that surprise people or make them smile or evoking feelings is what my job as a composer is. Just like you know how when you eat some foods from Christmas time, you take it you're all of a sudden you're back there at your grandmother's table eating Christmas food. Same thing's true of music. You can time travel and go back to different times with the various sounds. Davis and I recently did this live event, which you
0: get to hear today, where we discuss his subversive approach to the music industry, winning against the odds, and the importance of creating space for art. Stay tuned for the conversation after this break. We have a lot of hours of content here on Riverside Chats now. Our backlog has over 100 episodes, we're expanding into live events, and we have an exciting future for the show that we hope to be able to get to you. To make the show as good as it can be, and to continue to give you the kinds of conversations that you listen for, the reason why you subscribed in the first place, to hear coverage of arts, ideas, politics whatever it is that brings you here every time, please consider becoming a supporter of the show by making a sustaining monthly donation of $1, $5, whatever you can afford, and really whatever you think the show is worth, which maybe is zero. In which case, ouch, but okay. If you are interested in becoming a supporter, please look in the podcast notes. There should be a link in there that you can find that gives you all the information you need. Otherwise, thank you for considering supporting the show, and more, more importantly, thank you for listening. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Chip Davis has been making music for over five decades, scoring his first chart topper in 1976 with Convoy, the song he co-wrote with Bill Freeze. However, no mention of Chip Davis would be complete without the group he founded, Mannheim Steamroller, and the label he created to release its music, American Gramophone, both of which have captivated listeners and audiences since 1974. Davis has also been active in encouraging and enabling Omaha's unique artistic culture across several projects and media, including the restoration and preservation of Omaha's historic Benson Theater, where I had this live conversation with him about his life, his achievements, and the importance of creating space for art. Here is our conversation. For anyone who maybe doesn't know, uh, Riverside Chats actually started as a series of, I would do some live conversations just a couple doors over at B-Side when there was some construction happening here, but I had no idea that it would turn into this beautiful space. Uh, So let's hear it for Chip Davis Theater. So three years later to be here in this beautiful space in the Chip Davis Theater, still exploring the personalities and culture uh, that makes Omaha what it is, is really exciting. And of course, it's especially exciting to be able to do that with Chip Davis. So let's hear it for Chip. So I, I actually want to start uh, talking about a very popular composer. You know, he's someone who's always thought of as kind of this prodigy. He was very popular a couple hundred years ago. His name was Mozart. Uh, th- I think the, the story goes that he—it's kind of mythologized, right? But, and he, you know, he's writing symphonies by the time he's like, eight months old is the way that we generally tell that story. Why I bring that up is I think your story is not actually that different. Uh, You were writing music very, very young, right? Before we even get to that, though, you were doing piano lessons at age four?
1: Right. I I grew up in a little town in Ohio of 500 people, a little Ohio farm town, and my grandmother was my first piano teacher. And uh, so that was, and my dad was the music director at the school, and I mean, I come from a whole family of musicians, so... I come by it honestly, pretty much.
0: But piano lessons are, it uh, they takes a lot of perseverance and patience, and four year olds are not known
1: for either of those things.
0: Uh, what was it like to be doing piano at that age?
1: Well, you know, it was my grandmother's. Like I got a sugar cookie if I did the lesson right. <clears throat>
0: Was it tedious though? Like I took piano lessons when I was maybe 10 and I just got so sick of myself playing when the saints go marching in that at a certain point I lost the passion for it but for you it ignited something right?
1: Yeah and you know ultimately ultimately it caused me to want to start writing my own music so at age six I wrote I think my first piece of music Uh, it was about my dog Stormy and uh so I and then from there on I just kept writing music and uh Ultimately, you know, graduated from high school, went to the University of Michigan. I was a bassoon major in college at Michigan, and I'm a big contributor to Michigan, the music school now. And uh, my oldest daughter's been there with me. Uh, I have a, the Chip Davis technology suite that they use updated computers and things to compose on like, like we do in the studio. Anyway, it's just been a really a, a great thing to be involved with Michigan. And my parents went there. I had several aunts and uncles went there, everybody was in the music school. Remember that song that you wrote about your dog when you were six? Yeah, it was a little four-part chorale. It's kind of like a little church hymn. Can you sing it for us? Is it still in your in your brain? Well, I can only sing one part at a time. <laughs> would, you, would you be willing to? No.
0: <laughs> How much you got on you. <laughs> so you had that business sense even when you are six.
1: You going to
0: show if you're going to pay for a ticket. That's it, I'm expensive, you know. <laughs> So, when you're writing these songs then, I imagine there was a point uh, between when you're six and you're writing the song about your dog, and then when you decide to major in music. Um, mm-hmm. So, it, something happened where it re- you realized that, okay, maybe there's a future in music, and it's not just going to be a hobby, but it's going to be the main thing. How did, how did that manifest for you?
1: Well, I um, going through high school, I was a working musician, singing uh, and in various churches, uh, I've been several different denominations, including Christian Science. Uh, they only use soloists, and I had to memorize three songs uh, and sing them from memory uh, every Sunday. When I was I was about, a, I think I was a senior in high school. That uh, job got me the gas money that I could take my girlfriend out on a date. So uh, I, I was did the Christian Science thing. I was sing, a soloist. In a Southern Baptist church in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I went to college, uh, I was Presbyterian, Methodist. I've been in all kinds of different scenarios, and uh, so I, I had a pretty broad, broad exposure.
0: Well, and I mean the. To then think, though, that there's a job, I mean, beyond, I imagine that when you were envisioning it, and when you get to the point of wanting to study bassoon in college,
1: it's a little bit more specific than just sort of like, well, I might sing at churches, right? I mean, how did that crystallize? Well, you know, the the bassoon thing came about because uh, when I was like in junior high school, they needed bassoon and oboe players for the band and the orchestra. They picked anybody who looked like a, a viable subject to to do that. And so I started playing bassoon uh, in junior high school, and then ultimately that became my major instrument at Michigan. So they
0: thought you looked like a bassoon player?
1: They thought I looked like a bassoon. (laughs) (laughs) What does one do with a bassoon major traditionally? Play in an orchestra, you know, if you get good enough, but the thing is, then this is one of the reasons I kind of dropped away from it, went back, went to composing was that there's only two bassoonists per symphony. There's not a lot of room for, you know, somebody new to come in there. So uh, I I was playing in the Toledo Symphony in Ohio and played a lot of repertoire and learned a lot of things. And then at some point I thought, you know, I don't want to be on this side of the meat sheet music. I want to be on the other side writing it. So I went went to composing and I was teaching junior high school at the time. And uh, then I left junior high school teaching to become a composer. And I said I was going to give myself one year. And if I couldn't pull it off, then I was going to quit and go back to teaching. But apparently, I pulled it off.
0: (laughs) After, uh, I mean, in the time that you're doing all of that, and I know you had started writing early, were you writing music throughout
1: high school and college, too? Oh, yeah. What kind of music were you writing? Well, it was for various things. I mean, a lot of it was instrumental music. I wrote some vocal music, but a lot of it was instrumental music, and I wrote, like, there's one piece I wrote called Variations on a Tritone, which is an interval that has seven half steps in it. So I wrote um, this piece called Variations on a Tritone that was uh, for seven brass instruments performed in seven minutes. And so I was doing, like, fun brain teasers, you know, for my, my mind to, to compose those things. And uh, so those are, those are some of the kinds of things that I did. I wrote some band music, wrote some choral music, various things. So you were kind of all over
0: the place in your ambition with music.
1: Yeah, I still am. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I, as far as the influences, right, as you sort of, as, the more you study it, the more you play it, whatever you learn to play, you're sort of learning a little bit of the traditions, the theory, probably from a lot of different time periods, uh, and then just different styles and genres. Right. So what what were the big inspirations that were pouring into your music as you were starting to write?
1: Well, certainly Mozart, as you mentioned, you know, he was, uh, I, I always thought Mozart was like the most elegant, because it could sound really simple, but it was really very complex, but it, he, he didn't make it sound complex. I was, you know, of course, Bach, Beethoven, uh, Bartok, you know, from Romania. Just various composers from around the world. I've really followed and learned their styles and tried to learn how they were writing music.
0: But those guys, okay, so Mozart, let's go back to him.
1: Mozart, if he was
0: coming up the same time you were, he would not be able to write a bunch of symphonies, right? And probably get away with it. He'd have to somehow conform to what the market wants and what's popular, which is a little bit different. Right. So you've you got all these classical inspirations in you, but also you're able to channel that into what do people wanna hear? What are people interested in who maybe aren't music nerds, right? Or are really interested in studying it academically. So you land on, was country sort of where you were
1: gravitating as you're starting to think uh, that about That was a an accident. <laughs> well, tell us about that accident. Yeah. Uh, but it, uh, it was an accident that was a happy accident. That, uh, you know, I said there's two things back when I was leaving Ohio to come out here, I said, I'll never live in Nebraska, and I'll never write country music. (laughs) I guess we saw how that worked out. But, uh, yeah, I was writing uh, country music with Bill Fries, who um, just passed away about a month ago. He was 93. He was the voice of C.W. McCall, wrote all the words. I wrote all the music and produced the records. Anyway, I was country music writer of the year one year. That surprised me. And... uh, down in Nashville and going to all those conventions and things. It was it was a quite a ride. You know. uh, I'm very grateful for it though because I certainly did. I mean, Convoy sold 20 million copies worldwide, and uh, it gave me a lot of the income I had to start American Gramophone. And man, I'm steamroller. How did you and Bill meet? Um, he was an advertising executive at Bozell and Jacobs an Advertising Agency here and. Um, I was the jingle writer that he used for his commercials and film scores and you know industrial films that they they were doing for you know like Black and Decker some of the various clients they had, so they were making films and then I wrote the wrote the music for them.
0: So you found a way to make money. You found a way to channel your passion into something creative. Was it satisfying to you on an artistic level to be doing those, or was it always kind of a, a stepping stone?
1: No, it was fun. You know, I was I'm having a chance to write music. I was getting paid for it. I mean, I wrote like uh, one of the pieces I wrote was uh, in one of those industrial films. It was for a client, it was Black and Decker, and I used, I used drills for the melody because they zzz, I, they had pitch. And then I used other, like, hammers and stuff to make the rhythm instruments out of them. I, I had fun figuring out goofy ways to write music.
0: If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Chip Davis live the man behind Convoy and Mannheim Steamroller. What's your favorite episode of Riverside Chats this year or in any of our past 100 episodes? Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which we may play in one of our upcoming shows. So, I mean, you've always kind of had that approach then, right? Which is like the sounds don't have to be the way we're traditionally, you know, conditioned to think of what a song needs to sound like. Right. How would you get to be so sort of open-minded about you know, making music with drills or what you ended up doing with Christmas music and so on and so forth?
1: Uh, I didn't use any drills in Christmas music yet. <laughs> <But> <laughs> Next album idea, maybe. Probably, yeah. It'll just drill you. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I just, I don't know, sounds have always fascinated me and ways to make rhythms and melodies and things with di- different sounds, whether it was hand tools or whatever.
0: I mean, so, but you you, you never really limit yourself, it seems like. You're always sort of pushing to, well, you know, no one's ever done it this way. Maybe I'll see if it'll work, which also suggests that there's an ambition and kind of like, I don't know if if it's boldness or just kind of like a freedom
1: in your own ability to experiment. What do you attribute that to? Hmm, good question. I don't know. It's just, you know, like, like I say, I just have always been fascinated with sound. And then different ways to make sound, and make music out of odd things like hand tools. When you first pitched that idea, I'm going to make
0: music out of hand tools, did other people understand what, that that could actually work, or did you have to do it and then show it to them?
1: Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. I just was I had a memory that I did I did uh, one for Pioneer Chainsaws uh, one time, and that too, when we had a big stump in the studio, and I got that chainsaw cranked up and started cutting it, and it put out all this blue smoke and ru- almost ruined all the microphones in there. It's like, they're like, get that out of here. <laughs> but <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. I've, I've done a lot of crazy things with instruments that weren't instruments, I guess.
0: Well, that's, it's kind of been a recurring thing in your career that you're able to conceptualize music that's a little bit different than what other people are expecting in the genres that you're working in but they don't always understand that it will work, that it will click with you know, audiences, or that it will be pleasant to listen to. But sort of, you, you've always sort of been in this situation where you've gotta bet on yourself to get to that
1: next step, right? Yep, 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 you gotta like, you, you have to be confident that, that it's gonna work. If you're not confident that it's gonna work, don't start, you know, because you've really gotta stick to it to get it done. You, I mean, so you're confident when you say,
0: all right, we're going to use chainsaws today. Yeah. You know that's going to work out ahead of time? No. <laughs> I just wanted to smoke
1: up the studio.
0: <laughs> okay, so, so Convoy, how does that start? Uh, like, what's the, the process
1: of writing the music for something like Convoy? Well, Bill came up with that idea of doing Convoy. Now, Convoy was the seventh hit out of 13 number one hits that we had. Uh, so we had, a, we had quite a few. Bill got a CB radio, and was listening to these truckers out in the interstate talking on the CB radio. He said, "Man, this sounds like there's a war going on out there, or something." And because <clears throat> they were using, they're using all these names like Rubber Duck and you know uh, Pig Pen and all the various the handles that they called it that they used. And so Bill said, "Let's write a song." So it's kind of funny the way Bill and I worked together. I would call him and say, okay, I'm gonna do verses that are eight bars, and then there'll be four-bar chorus, and then go back to another verse. I would write that separate, and Bill would write the words separate. I never heard what he wrote until he was in the studio. He never heard what I wrote until we were in the studio. And it just fit like a glove. I mean, Bill and I always got along really well doing that. And so I imagine,
0: because Convoy was such a big hit, That you had an opportunity to sort of stay in that lane so to speak right and to continue Mm -hmm. to make music in that vein did you consider doing that or was it always something where again you're sort of like well this this is working and you know i'm sure it's an exciting opportunity obviously it opens up doors but you chose to open doors that were totally different than more convoy
1: well after convoy i mean we did round the world with the rubber duck too and then in that one the round the world with the rubber duck we were leaving new york and going across the pond we ended up in russia so we were like doing verses in russian uh, in chinese it was crazy i mean it was just any way to do something really unusual was, was a lot of fun
0: did you i mean were you surprised at how successful convoy was
1: yeah yeah it was yeah it was, it was a big record <laughs> why yeah. why do you think it clicked so well why did people love it don't know <laughs> i think some of it is that you know it sort of expresses the american spirit of like a cowboy going across the country, you know, break them gates, do a 98. It said, let them truckers roll 10 You know, and that it's that kind of spirit, the cowboy spirit of America. I think that that's how the truckers kind of looked at themselves. Well,
0: and so through doing that, uh, you eventually do settle in Omaha, right? Um, well, it's, it's kind of funny because, like, doing this show pretty much generally I talk to people who were maybe born in Omaha or lived here for a little bit, and then they leave. Or I talk to people who maybe do live in Omaha but are intending to leave sometime soon. You decided to, as someone who was not originally from here, sort of make it
1: your own. Why, what was it about Omaha that appealed so much to you? Oh, people, you know, great people. I was being very successful in the recording studio. Uh, I've got three wonderful children. One of them's here tonight, my oldest daughter, Kelly. And um, so uh, I've got a 150-acre farm. I've got uh, horses and wolves. i got two timber wolves. Uh, The 12-year-old timber wolf is like 225 pounds. When he stands on his hind legs, he puts his paws on my shoulder, and I get a big gluck on the face. You know, he's very affectionate, but he's big. He's a white wolf, and uh, yeah, that's, you know, these are the experiences that, I'm not gonna be doing that in New York City, I don't think.
0: Well, so when you start to calibrate, all right, next step after you've almost uh, conquered the country market, right, uh, you you know, you're thinking, I have something different, something very different that I'm interested in, and I imagine it was kind of like a struggle. People try to tell you, hey, why don't you keep doing this? Why don't you stick with what's been working instead of completely reinventing the wheel?
1: Well, I wanted to do fresh air, man, I'm a steamroller. And I went to, I mean, at that point, because of McCall, I knew most of the major label presidents, and I could get in to see them. I mean, it wasn't hard for me to go see them, because they're like, oh, he makes these giant country records. So I'd get in to see them, and I'd give them the Fresh Air One album, and uh, they'd take it, you know, I'd give everybody in the meeting one of those, and they'd take it home and come back with a, what the answer was, um, hey, you know, this doesn't fit any genre that we sell in, but could I get a box of those for my family? (laughs) (laughs) Well, apparently I just sold them to yours. (laughs) Fresh Air is an interesting album. How did it come to be? Well, the air is spelled A-I-R-E, as in homage to Johann Sebastian Bach's air on a G-string. And so, uh, the the title cut on there is a patterned after the architecture of error on a G String, and that's where it kind of came from was, was the, the whole idea of doing it like Bach. Well, and doing it like Bach is like we've sort of said it's not the
0: the most obvious approach in you know the last <laughs> couple hundred years, right? Uh, so, but you he didn't you, mind. <laughs> But so you're able to kind of connect back to those roots, right, of the yeah. music that was inspiring you from when you were a kid, uh, probably stuff that you learned when you were a kid, right? And so to sort of bring that also into the 21st century, the 20th century, uh, with sounds that were very different than Bach, right, the type, of, the type of sound itself, even though some of the rhythms and some of the theories, you know, classical in that sense, uh, I imagine it was this great fusion for you and kind of satisfying to, to that kid who was writing songs from the time he was six years old to really engage in that creative way, and sort of bring it
1: all together. One of the other fun and interesting things that happened as a result of this, in that era when I was writing Fresh Air, I wanted to use an instrument called the harpsichord. And you can't just go into Schmidt Music and buy a harpsichord. So my dad, my dad had taught school back in Ohio. He retired, moved out here, and we started building harpsichords for our road tours. Plus clavichords, I wrote, Clavichord is a small instrument like this. Uh, I call, wrote, wrote a piece called Box Lunch, <laughs> and uh, anyway, uh, I, I used the clavichord to uh, perform that p- particular piece on. Uh, clavichord would have been used for somebody that was going to go out and sit and you know sit under a tree and just wanted to play some music by themselves. So um, I had all those harpsichords, all, you know, all kinds of stuff. Then we started to electrify the harpsichords uh, because, in the big venues, we play in 25,000 seat venues some of the time. And to do that, you know, we needed to be able to plug into the harpsichords so that the sound wasn't my microphone, was not the way to do it because you'd hear all the other sound on stage. And when you brought the level up, you'd you bring everything else up with it so you weren't getting a really clear image. So we started um, modifying the harpsichords and building microphones right in, right on the sound boards. When you
0: start hearing that sound, I imagine that was like a light bulb going off too, because it, it's very different, right?
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Did it change the way that you wrote some of the harpsichord music?
1: Well, the instrument, my biggest instrument is about nine feet long. It's in my it's in my music room at my house. It's got three ranks of strings. It's got five or six different stops. It has one called a pot de bufala stop which is stands for buffalo and it's a leather leather plector that that plucks it. Uh, you can choose to have a four foot, two eight foot, two eight foot alone. Um, you know there's just a myriad of combinations for sounds that you can have. So uh, once again, going back to you know, my ear is what guides me. I mean, I really love sound and love doing things with it. So the harpsichords, I wanted to do things that were from that period, too. And one of the fun pieces I wrote was called Four Rows of Jacks. And it, it's a, it rocks out. It really rocks out. And it's not jacks like, like that you play cards with. The things that come up and pluck the strings are called jacks. And I had there's four rows of jacks that could do it and you couple all those together, and man, it was a heck of a sound.
0: Well, so, yeah, I mean, you're taking kind of that same skill that led you to make chainsaw music, right? And now it's it's, it's finessed more. Yeah. Uh, but it must have been tough, though, when people in the industry appreciated it but weren't willing to really bet on it, right? Yeah, so I did it myself.
1: That, that's got to be a scary decision. Yeah, and it worked, obviously, sure. Yeah, the first Christmas album, uh, you know, they weren't like... They're like nobody buys Christmas albums. I said, "Well, oh, that's okay. I don't care. I'll just do it myself." Well, uh, the, none of the major labels would take my Christmas music, and uh, like I say, I knew a lot of the presidents of the big labels, and um, you know, all of a sudden, that Christmas record—the first one I did—I went to the retailers, Target, Walmart. I, I knew all, the, got to where I knew all the buyers. That first record in the first season sold nine million copies and it was like yeah it like oh it worked <laughs>
0: <laughs> what gravitated why did you gravitate to christmas music
1: i just have always liked it you know particularly and you'll see here on my albums there are some of the cuts that go back to the renaissance uh, christmas christmas music one of the first composers was johann hermann Schein, who was a north german composer and uh, wrote some of the first Christmas music. Uh, It was for celebrations, you know, and uh, that also, by the way, is where Red and Green comes from, because they're performing this in big castle halls, and they're all gray, so they started using holly and ivy to decorate and and spice it up and drink wassail and uh, spice it all up for, for the Christmas season. So I really got into that which is why then I started recording. I always had at least one, sometimes three or four, pieces that were done. I wrote them modern-day carols, but I wrote them in the style of the Renaissance. Was that something that you'd had in your head for a while, or did it come out just, uh, you know, in the oh, fresh I air? Oh, finally got out of there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was uh, something that just, it just struck me that it would be cool to take some of these carols back, play them in the time of the Renaissance. And then we went to London and we shot a feast in a great hall over there, the way it would have been performed with this music that I modified. And then we hired costumers and everybody in in London to uh, put it all together and then performed it with the music. And uh, that piece, it's about a 10, 12 minute piece, I think we just put that back in the show this year. Sometimes I rotate them out so they don't get stale. You know, take them out for like three or four years, slide it back in there, and I think the whole Renaissance section might be back in this year.
0: Yeah, well, sure, let's, let's keep clapping for Chip, why not? <laughs> <Let's. laughs> he deserves
1: I'm talking with
0: Chip Davis live about success against the odds and the importance of space for art. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chants on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Stay tuned for the rest of the conversation after this break. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and we've got a backlog of 100 episodes of Riverside Chats wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever your favorite app is. And while you're there, please give us a review. Today you're listening to my live conversation with Chip Davis at Benson Theatre. Chip Davis is the man behind the classic song Convoy, which he co-wrote with Bill Freeze, and also the man behind the most successful Christmas music albums of all time through his band, Mannheim Steamroller. Here's the rest of our conversation. When you're out there betting on yourself kind of over and over again, and it seems to keep working over and over again, I mean, why is it that the music industry uh, was not betting on you more when you sort of would take these ideas that maybe seemed unusual, but clearly were clicking with audiences?
1: Well, they were betting on me after I sold 9 million Christmas records. (laughs) And then I'm like, apparently I don't need you. Bye. (laughs) Well, to me,
0: that kind of connects back to what was working and clicking with even Convoy, right? You're tapping into this American idea, the entrepreneur, someone who can do it on their own, bet on themselves. Uh, You know, it's got that sort of uh, American dream element to it as well. Is that something that you were thinking about at all?
1: Mm, I don't know if I was thinking of it that way exactly, but I was just, you know, I was caught up in the music itself and just how to do it. It It's like using a chainsaw and a drill, and you know, stuff to just see what what could I make with different sounds.
0: Now, with the Christmas music, how much of that is composing? I mean, it's a lot of arrangement, right? Yeah you're using existing songs and rhythms. Yes. So that's got to be a
1: little bit different as a, as a process. Well, the trick deal there is that most Christmas carols are what they call strophic songs, which means there's like maybe 8 to 12-bar 12, 12 verse, and then it depends on going with the second verse of lyrics. So when you've got a strophic song, I mean, it's basically the same thing over and over, because it's depending on the lyrics. Well, what I had to do was, since I didn't have lyrics, was I had to make up bridges that went off on different tangents, so it'd go, but it to sound like, oh, that must have been in the original song, kind of idea. So uh, that made it uh, difficult but fun, and it made it to where I could uh, really own it myself. So uh, the, the Strophic song turned out to be my friend, after all. But uh, it, it was, uh, you know, by modifying and rearranging and changing orchestrations and doing some of that. I, I used to write this stuff out actually on a legal pad, and I'd draw lines on it, and this would be a violin line, this would be a viola line, this would be a cello, this would be drums, bass, guitar, you know, whatever. And then I would mark it out where they came in and went out so that you could see I could see a visual map representation of what I was actually working with and then it'd go to the music paper after that.
0: So you obviously from a, like an early stage were able to conceptualize how all of those sounds work with each other on this sort of big scale right? I you mean you're working with way more than one or two instruments and to, to have your brain be able to sort of understand that on a legal pad I assume comes from in part just having done it right and probably trying a lot of things and trial and error uh but I mean to to be able to really understand how those sounds will harmonize is that come from just your appreciation of some of that older music you were talking about whether it's renaissance baroque classical and sort of the complexity that they used to have that maybe is less popular now
1: yeah it's uh I would take you know some of the old Classical composers or Baroque composers. They weren't Baroque for long, though. They made a lot of money, actually, later. <laughs> so I know, hey, you asked me to come here, okay? <laughs> and then Christmas music is something that, uh,
0: it, I mean, did you just sort of were like, all right, well, this is clearly popular. People want a mm-hmm. lot of it, and it's a fun challenge, I assume, right? Yeah. And so you were able to keep yourself interested and continue to do it for a long
1: time. Yeah.
0: Are you still doing new Christmas music?
1: No. <laughs> when did that end? Ran out of songs. <laughs> I mean, I've even I've probably written half a dozen or ten Christmas carols myself because i have running out of material to do another album. Uh, one an interesting thing we we're playing in. Uh, oh my! I, we we're playing somewhere in Arizona, and it was a big it was a big venue, and I was probably I was probably in my mid thirties and uh, I had just put White Christmas into the song stack, and I met Bing Crosby's wife. She came to our show, and that was, wow, I was really impressed by that. She was such a nice lady. Why is it that we don't have new
0: Christmas musics? Why is it like a limited selection of the catalog? Mm, Well,
1: there's only so many Christmas songs, I guess. Couldn't you write 30 more, though, and then now there's new ones? How much you got? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not really even writing music right now. You know, I've got, I've got two albums, the, uh, the Wilderness album, and I've got uh, Exotic Spaces that we haven't really fully released yet. I mean, they're, they're out on, like, our website and everything. But, like, Exotic Spaces, they're talk about, like, using drills and stuff. Exotic Spaces, there's one piece I wrote called Playa Belena, and uh, that's, uh, it's about whales, and so I used a recording, and I've got all this underwater equipment to record with, of course, and uh, I recorded whales singing, uh, and this is, this is not a pun, but they sing in the key of C, like C, C, not S-E-A, and uh, so I used, I used the whale song, and I literally wrote the piano part out around it, and like when it, it would, it would stop for a little bit and let me do some stuff, and then he'd come back, and then we'd do it together. And uh, but yeah, the whale using the whale songs was uh, was really beautiful. I had a good friend named Hardy Jones who was an underwater photographer, and he gave me a lot of uh, cool video stuff to use in our shows.
0: So the idea of using sounds of whales, how did how did that come about?
1: Well, I'm Welch. <laughs> so, so if, from whales... <laughs> Okay. (laughs) (laughs) My welchness comes from probably Pembroke, Pembroke area, which is in South Wales. I've been there to see some of the big castles and astounding, just astounding. I want to take my kids over there pretty soon. And uh, yeah, Pembroke Castle is unbelievable.
0: So, I don't know where you go as far as your ambition to go from, you know, things like chainsaws, drills, to reinventing Christmas music, to literally the sounds of the sea. I was going to say maybe space next, but I don't think there's any sound there. I've got space stuff.
1: Yeah, I do. Exotic spaces. There's a, there's a piece in there that's about that. I've, I've got a close relationship with NASA and the astronauts. Uh, we have a great astronaut, you know, who's from Ashland here, uh, Clayton Anderson, He's a good buddy of mine, and uh, when he's back from Houston, he—he's now moving back here permanently, and is going to be the director, uh, or he may be already doing it, of the, um, yeah, the SAC Museum. Yeah, he's the director of that, I believe now. When he comes up here, he—he he likes to go to, uh, go to mahogany. He goes, hey, what are you doing this weekend? Let's go eat some cow. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, so at some point, you uh, were the only commercial entity allowed to audio and videotape space shuttle shuttle launches and Mm -hmm. landings. How did that happen?
1: Uh, Well, I was at a convention in uh, Colorado Springs, and I met Jim Kennedy, the director of the Kennedy Space Center. uh, And I said, I'd sure like to come down and see what that sounds like. And he made arrangements for us to come down. We created a Space Act agreement, which made my company partners with them. And we went down and recorded like launches and landings. And um, I think we probably recorded at least 20 launches. And uh, I've got a lot of good friends there. Uh, the uh, One of the guys that started NASA, uh, I know him quite well. And uh, his daughter's director of one of the divisions now. And so anyway, through those relationships, I've been able to go down and visit things see what it sounds like they all said well there's no reason to record a landing because there's no sound and I went yeah right they said no it's the only one that's going off you know and I'm like you got a big wing up there coming down you know that space shuttle pushing air at you and that's not making any sound it's louder than takeoff and so we recorded launches and landings and uh I've used that in uh I've used to use that sound in, I can't remember which piece it is, I've used it in one of the records. So. How, uh,
0: how do you use that in a song, the sound of a space shuttle landing or taking off? comes right on after the drill. <laughs> what note does a space shuttle land in?
1: Uh, well, if it's in the ocean, it's in sea. <laughs> which I have seen them, I have seen them drop, the, they're called SRBs, it's a Solid Rocket Boosters, and I've watched watched those come off of the, sh- the shuttle. That's what those are the big engines that take the shuttle up, till it gets up to uh, uh, gets going about 17,000 miles an hour, I think, going around the Earth. I'm pretty interested in Mars right now too, actually. The sounds of Mars, or uh, just what's going on up there, you know, and what they're finding, and I want to colonize it so I can sell records. <laughs> <laughs>
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to my live conversation at Benson Theatre with Chip Davis. What's your favorite episode of Riverside Chats from this year or since the show began? Let us know. Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which we may play on an upcoming show. Well, and so you got uh, a lot of sort of uh, you've done a lot with. The success that you've, you've amassed over the course of your career, you've given back. Like, for example, uh, you received the Department of Defense Award for your donation of one million Christmas CDs to the troops overseas and domestically. I mean, giving back is something that not, not all the people naturally seem to do that very well. How did, how did your relationship with success lead to this sort of, uh, second act as well of, I gotta make sure that I'm helping the community. I'm helping, you know, whether it's troops, whether it's building spaces for art. Where did that come from?
1: Being a good person. Just basically wanting to give back. Just like with, with this theater for Amy, you know, I wanted to help and give back because the community has been so supportive of myself for over forty some years. And when Amy came to me with this idea, this theater, I wanted to get involved financially to help with any way that I could, because I wanted to give back to Omaha.
0: I understand your concert for Yellowstone proceeds uh, provided one of the largest private donations to Yellowstone, which got you uh, recognition by the White House and Department of the Interior for your contributions. So Yellowstone, what's your relationship with that, other than I know it has wolves?
1: I've seen them, too. Uh, They have a compound with a big chain-link fence where they have domestic... They're not domesticated wolves. They're the real thing. Actually, my oldest daughter, who's here tonight, was riding on... uh, Mike Finley's shoulders, who was the chief ranger at the time there, and he took us out to go see the wolves. And, and then I have a compound on my farm that's seven acres, and that's where my wolves hang out. Oh, they're, um, they're really something. They're really smart. And uh, like I say, the, 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 big, the big white wolf is extremely affectionate. If I'm sitting watching TV, and I got my arm on the armrest on the recliner, if I'm not paying enough attention, he comes over and puts his nose under my arm and like, starts doing this. I'm like, pet, pet me. <laughs> Come on, dad.
0: <laughs> well, so, I mean, beyond that, I assume you you also appreciate Yellowstone beyond yep. the, the wolf. You know, just because you like wolves is probably not the whole story, right?
1: Yeah, we recorded a lot of video up in Yellowstone because I, uh, I did a whole Yellowstone project with an album with videos, with all of that, and uh, search and rescue guys put us on the helicopters. We, took one of the one of the videographers from Omaha and we went up and we shot a lot of stuff from from the helicopter uh, going down right on the deck on Lake Yellowstone and uh, it's, it's a spectacular looking video. And uh, I wanted to do that because my grandfather was a country doctor in Ohio and when I was little my family took me everywhere with them to all these places and I think I went to Yellowstone the first time when I was probably five and uh, I just got a love for nature all, all the time. Have you recorded sounds in Yellowstone? Yep. Which ones? Uh, chainsaw. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember. We recorded all kinds of stuff. One of uh, the, uh, they call it bugling, is what the elk do. And uh, they don't use real bugles. But uh, <laughs> but they eat bugles. That, that you know. <clears throat> See, I told you, you, got, you asked me to come here. What,
0: what are some of the other sounds that you're interested in collecting that you haven't yet?
1: Hmm. I don't know. I've gotten, like, here in the Midwest, my woods is wired with four-channel sound, and um, I can, I mean, I recorded all the seasons, uh, except winter, of course, but I'm, I've got, like, locusts. I've got, like, crickets and stuff, like, in the summer. Uh, fall, there's, you know, there's all kinds of sounds in the fall. So I've you know I've recorded all that I've used those on. There's a another album series I created called Ambiance, and that's what that album series is about. Some of it's in five-channel audio that you can play on your uh, like your big system in your house, like a 5.1 system. And then um, then the ambience is like, I mean, it is so real that uh, you'd swear that you're sitting right out in the middle of that woods. It's it's a beautiful experience.
0: It's interesting how many sounds you're able to sort of conceptualize either as music or as something that could be incorporated into music. I mean, you uh, must be very aware of all the sounds you're hearing at any moment, right? Pretty much, yeah. Is that just your training through music or was it always like that?
1: No, oh, I think it just, you know, I grew up in that little farm town in Ohio and I was always sensitive to sound. You know, just, it's just in me. and. You know, my, like I say, my parents and grandparents and everybody were all musicians at one time. And so I just grew up around it, and it was just part of my makeup.
0: But, I mean, not everyone is not able to... Not
1: that I wear makeup. Oh, of course, yeah.
0: I'll pause for the pun next time before I jump into a question. We're not done yet. <laughs> but, I mean, the, when you uh, are able to sort of conceptualize a sound as something that can be music. Like, I don't think a lot of people uh, would think about, you know, whales as potentially music. You're able to do that. Which is interesting, is that just, again, because you sort of, you, you don't like to have these limits on what can be music, and right. you're always sort of willing to push that boundary whenever you can. Yep, absolutely.
1: Yeah, I love, I, I, like I say, I love sound, and I love, you know, using it in various ways and doing things that surprise people or make them smile or, you know, I- evoking feelings, uh, and sometimes it's sad feelings, evoking... Feelings is what my job as a composer is to do and that's Why I like to uh, do all these various audio projects to just to evoke the feelings because just like you know How when you eat some foods from you know that like maybe Christmas time you take it You're all of a sudden you're back there at your grandmother's table eating Christmas You know Christmas food same thing's true of music you can time travel go back to different times with the various sounds uh the Ambiance Series, the Mayo Clinic uses that in all three facilities uh, to um, just to, it, it helps with when they are giving injections and things just to hyper people down. And so uh, that, that's another whole use of the medical side of uh, things that we've got going on as well. How would you come to experience or understand the medical side of it? Um, part of it was my grandfather was a country doctor and uh, he used to take me on house calls. He was a horse and buggy doctor, and I just always was around the medical side of things. Now, I went to Michigan, and so he went to Ohio State, so yes, make that clear. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, Thanksgiving weekend was always an interesting
0: time. (laughs) Well, I mean, but like this idea that silence can make you uncomfortable, and even ambiance, which isn't overtly music or maybe it's a little bit less intentional uh just some simple tones can do a lot for somebody's mentality i think there was you know now in today's world you never really have to be around silence ever uh and Sometimes
1: you want to be, yeah.
0: <laughs> sure, but I mean, it's interesting how there was a point when, you know, people didn't have recorded music at all. There was a point when you didn't have a phone that could always give you ambiance. Right. But people are really embracing it, and I, it's difficult to imagine that people will go back to silence, right? That And you were kind of ahead of the curve on that, of understanding even the power of ambiance, of just simple tones, doesn't have to be melody.
1: Right. Why do you think that was? Well, the, the, the way it affects you, you know, the uh, sound of locusts or... <clears throat> crickets. I recorded once it's on Fresh Air Three. I recorded a cricket in my house in Raven Oaks with two Sennheiser 421s, and I had a stereo cricket going. And on Fresh Air Three, I wrote "Claudette A. and I wrote it in the style of a bolero. Bump, dum, da, 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 dum, 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 da, da dum, 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 and it was like just dead on the meter. You know, it's just like those whales, and uh, and it was. the Cricket was just chiming right in there. And like I say, it's on Fresher 3. So if you have one of those around, it's Claudette Cricket.
0: So I know you say you're not actively writing anything right now, but it sounds like just the way you process the world is always kind of writing music, isn't it?
1: Uh, yeah, I've kind of taken a break, really. You know, because like I say, I've got two albums, uh, True Wilderness and Exotic Spaces that we really haven't Exploited yet? That I've got two albums in the can that need to have some attention put on them, and so I, you know, writing some more right now. Just I think you kind of clutter it up.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's just like the way you process things, though. Like your brain processes things musically. It sounds like.
1: Yeah, yeah, I guess. You know, uh, you know, I like to do different things, hear different sounds, figure out ways to use a space shuttle launch, all those kind of things. I really like doing all that.
0: Is there a place the audience can go to hear your two latest albums or how they can help support them?
1: Uh, Well, uh, Amazon. Just go to Amazon and look up Man, I'm Steamroller. Uh, True Wilderness and Exotic Spaces should be on there.
0: Well, so as we get sort of to the end of tonight's program, before we do audience questions, uh, of course we're here in the Chip Davis Theater, which exists because of your contributions to creating space for art right here in Omaha. I wondered if maybe we could wrap up the discussion with your advice for people who maybe are sort of in the same boat you've been in, which is to say, they maybe have something that they want to add to the culture artistically, but they aren't sure how to get started, they aren't sure that people in the industry will be receptive to their ideas, maybe they won't get it the same way they didn't get yours. So I wonder, I mean, what's your advice for the people who
1: might be the next Chip Davis out there? Don't. (laughs) It's frustrating. So yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, you know, new young composers, It's just like I had to find, you know, thread the needle to find ways to get my music out there over all these years when I was starting, you know. Nobody really knew on it and wanted to know about it, really. You just keep at it, you know, perseverance. There's a lot to be said for that. Uh, New composers, young guys that are are doing this stuff, just stay at it and see if you can find different ways to do the music that you love. I, I think that's all I can say about it. Follow the dream, you know.
0: Well, Chip, it's been amazing talking to you. Thank you so much uh, for being here. This has been great.
1: Yeah, let's, let's clear here for Chip. It's been, it's been my pressure.
0: <laughs> Perfect. Well, on that note, uh, we do have an audience here. So if an audience member has a question for Chip, please raise your hand and Todd will come around and give you a mic.
1: Or a Fred. <laughs> Is this, my, uh, I'm on. I'm. I play uh, third cornet, by the way. But I have a question regarding the uh, advertising business. Besides the power tools and old home bread, what jingles are you most proud of in your advertising career? Oh, geez, I wrote three thousand of them. Uh, Well, obviously, the, well the jingles. Yeah, uh, well, like, you know, the thing that comes to mind is like the, the drill, and you know the instruments like I was using for, for that. Um, I could use a drill or a chainsaw, could create melody, so that's why I'd use those for, and then I'd use hammers and different things to create the rhythm track with.
2: I missed the part about how your family came from Ohio to Omaha. Like, what, why did you leave that little town of 500 people and come to Omaha?
1: Well, I, I didn't come to Omaha first. I, my dad moved to, we moved to Portland, Oregon, when I was 10 years old. And we spent a year in Oregon. And then um, came back and we lived in Sylvania, Ohio, which is a suburb of Toledo, and that's where I was, where I graduated high school before I went to Michigan. So we kind of jumped around a couple different places. I still, I just two years ago, I think, I went back to my little farm town in Ohio just to go see it again, see my grandparents' house. Uh, the Methodist church has been torn down, and now there's an apartment complex. The school's been torn down, and I, it's like, I kind of didn't really want to see that. You know? I wanted to leave it in my, my memory.
2: But how did you first land in Omaha? Like, what brought you here? Car. Okay, so a car, but, but, but why? Like, what, what yeah, happened? Why did so, you wind up in Omaha?
1: Uh, <clears throat> there's, there's a theater down on 84th and Center called the Talk of the Town <clears throat> Dinner Theater. I think that's where the Knights of the Something are right now. And um, that was the Talk of the Town Dinner Theater. I was hired to come out the, the musical Hair was real big and popular then in the 70s. And so uh, they hired me to come out and rearrange it for a smaller orchestra than what would be in Broadway. So I was doing Hair. Um, and that, that was supposed to be a six-week gig, and it went for like, I don't know, probably 25 weeks or something. I mean, it, it lasted a long time. That gave me the opportunity to go to the recording studio and start making records. So one thing kind of led to another. Thanks. Hi, Chip. Um, My name's Brad Colrick, and
2: uh, I'm going to be playing here tomorrow night. I just want to thank you for helping to bring this theater, beautiful theater, to fruition and helping Amy um but I I made my first record uh, was uh, recorded at sound recorders mm-hmm. and you were working on fresh Air three, I believe yeah in and you guys worked at night, we came in in the morning, early morning and candles everywhere and I just wondered is the was working at night something you did, Is that, was that a preference creatively or was that,
1: what was the decision to do that? It was quiet and it was out of the way of the commercial traffic that was going on with jingles and all of that.
2: Yeah, okay.
1: Mm -hmm. And we'd we'd work until maybe two or three in the morning and then go home.
0: Chip, good evening, thank you for being here. Hey, every creative individual has had a time when you set out to do something and it just didn't go as planned and the train left the tracks and then you have to pivot and you have to make up a solution. Have you had a time where it actually ended up being better than you had first intended?
1: Um, you know, I, I uh, uh, write everything out on staff paper. <clears throat> it's not. Sometimes I leave some areas open for the keyboard players or somebody to maybe put a line on top of it despite what I've written out, but it's all planned. I mean, all the orchestrations are planned. You know, I've recorded with the London Symphony two times, the Czech Philharmonic, and, you know, all that stuff has to be really written out, planned, and, you know, you kind of just don't go over there. I remember I went to London, and uh, I thought, I want to call up the London Symphony and see if I can hire them for Fresh Air 5. I called them up, and they said, yeah, sure. I went, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. I better write Fresh Air 5. (laughs) (laughs) And so I did. So, um, yeah, and then I went back and recorded it at CTS Studios, which is now gone. Uh, Anyway, uh, yeah, I I did Fresh Air 5 there and Fresh Air 6 there with the London Symphony. I was 25 years old. Scared the crap out of me.
0: Probably one of those that doesn't need the mic a whole lot chip thank thank you not aside from the creative side of things i want to thank you for the performing side of things too oh, thank the you. the joy in your face over the years that we've watched in the concerts uh and that leads me down one question we haven't really talked about and that's percussion yeah uh, we heard about bassoon but how did your interest in percussion happen and how did that influence steamroller or was it chicken and egg related no it's
1: like uh in high school, you know, marching band kind of thing. And then when I went to Michigan and I was doing percussion in the Michigan marching band. Two, there there's 200, it was all male then. It was 200 uh, in the Michigan band. And then that, that big field, I remember my dad played in the Michigan band. He said, when you come out of the tunnel, he said, your knees are going to turn to rubber. And I'm like, yeah, right, Dad. Uh, he was right. You know, you come out and there's 101,001 people up there looking at you and you're like, you like just like freeze um, it was a quite an experience
2: thank you so much for being here tonight my name is Maria and I'm curious to hear I know you gave yourself a year to you know give a break to teaching and take on music if you would not have made it in that year do you think you would have still given yourself that time and space because it is your passion and kind of what you've been called to do throughout your life
1: yeah, I just, uh, you know, that's what I wanted to do, was, uh, you know, compose music. And uh, yeah, I decided I'm going to give myself a year and see what happens, and I wrote, that's why I wrote Pressure One. And so uh, then, since we were doing everything ourselves, we had to get it pressed, we had to do the artwork, uh, make, you know, the album covers. I saw one tonight, somebody brought one in to sign. I hadn't seen an old 12, one of the big 12-inch discs in a while, and uh, they're pretty cool. Then we did, I did gatefold ones too, where they opened up and it was like 12 by 12, so it was 24 inches wide. So I, I, the, I used a, an artist named Gilbert Williams uh, from Sausalito, and uh, he did conceptual art. I saw his stuff in Scientific American, I tracked him down, and I had him do that art like for Fresh Air 5 and 6. And uh, it's it's spectacular looking stuff that he did. Yeah, Chip,
0: uh, I'm an architect, and and in, being in the creative field, it's really interesting to me to see how you blended the traditional old style of the of the Renaissance music with the new style, and just the, I think I guess my question is, how do you view what we can learn from history? You know, every new artist wants to come out with the greatest new thing, but There are so many great lessons that can be learned from history. Can you talk a little bit about how that influenced your music?
1: Um, The, you know, the classic composers, you know, the uh, famous classical composers uh, came up with lots of really cool stuff. And they all had their own special styles. You, when you get to know them a little bit, you can hear Brahms, you know, it's Brahms and Mozart and all that. And that really affected me. Uh, trying to, what I did, I got to a point where I was trying to copy their styles just to see if I could do it, and then I wrote some pieces like, I, I did a set of variations on Twinkle Twinkle Little Star that was everything from Mozart to Stravinsky, and um, the, um, the the uh, theory teacher at Michigan thought it was stupid and, and, and everything, and now he's retired and I'm not. Uh, <coughs> story of your life, really, right?
2: <laughs> thank you so much, Chip. Um, I'd like to say on behalf of the Benson Theater and some of the volunteers who've been involved for a really long time since the beginning of kind of the concept, thank you so much for this. We have worked really, really hard over the course of the last seven to eight years, and so thank you for that. Um, I'd also like to say that the very first Mannheim Steamroller Christmas album is a staple in my household. And my father passed away last year, um, and he suffered from Alzheimer's the last eight years of his life. And I will tell you that every year at Christmas time, he absolutely had to have that disc playing on Christmas Eve when we would have all of our guests over. So thank you so much for that. It really gave him a lot of comfort.
1: Thank you for that.
2: A lot of comfort. And so my question actually is, if... You had to pick your favorite Christmas song. What would it be?
1: Silent Night. It's the last cut on first album. And I got a Grammy for that one. But but I had a Grammy back in Ohio making pies too. So <laughs> that's probably where we should wrap up on a pun. Thanks. Thanks so much,
0: Chip. It's been amazing. Riverside Chance is a production of KOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowitz. And big thanks to Benson Theater for hosting this conversation. Remember, you can find the backlog of all of these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today. Please leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.